Welcome to Closing the Gap, and I'm your host, Denise Cooper. Ever wanted good advice or insights about your career, leadership, or navigating messy organizational politics? Getting good advice can make all the difference between making the right choices and worrying about what to do. So sit back, relax, and listen as my guests and I talk about lessons learned about career success, leadership, and HR in the 21st century. In this segment, we're talking about a really tough subject. One in three women and one in four men have had their lives torn apart because of sexual assault and domestic violence. That statistic means if not you, then you know someone who has been a victim. It's not dealt with because of the desire by so many victims who just want to get it over with, put it in a box, and never think about it again. I decided to post this conversation because I recently met a man who lost everything because the woman he had been dating was a stalker and an abuser. He was homeless, moving from the city he'd been living in for 13 years to a small town in South Carolina, where in his words, he said, I just want some peace. My guest today was a victim, but not anymore. Alicia Brooks, founder of Brandneekly You, runs a boutique marketing firm focused on turning your personal and business brand into something that helps you get promoted and increases the probability of your business success. Alicia was raped in college by someone she knew and later in life found herself in an abusive marriage. She's here today to share her story. Please welcome Alicia Brooks. So let's kind of talk a little bit about your passion work around mentoring and helping women find not only their voice, but their footing in the world. How did you get involved in this? What made you say this is it? Well, I think from my childhood and things going up that I've experienced during college days and things. So it's where I've always people would come to me and I I used to think I was going to be a psychologist, psychiatrist and all that. I was going to go to Fisk University and do all the counseling and all that stuff. But I think that's my second life. So that's probably how I got into it because all my friends and even people older than me, strangers, would even, if I say hi or give them a compliment, it's always they're sharing a story. They're sharing something. And I just find myself in that realm, which I love it. And so getting to do that every day is, is a joy to me. So I think I got into it from that aspect because I wanted to be a psychiatrist. <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. Setting the mind and how behaviors are and how people think. Um, very observant. And so watching that and then coupled with the whole reputation and brand development and all that stuff and it just kinda coupled together. But for me, personally, on the mental health issues and domestic violence and sexual assault, I was raped in college. So the sexual assault came from that piece. And then from that, going through domestic violence in marriage, that has brought me to another level. And my experience, my story, I feel is not for me to be silent about. And so I know that every time I speak about it, it helps other women. So if you don't mind, let's pause mm-hmm. right here because, you know, when people meet you, you are a, you know, relatively tall very beautiful, dynamic young lady. You speak powerfully. You know, you're quite knowledgeable about marketing and branding and 
and reputation management, that kind of thing. I don't think people would look at you and say that either you have been in a situation where you were um, raped and or that you would be someone who would, you know, fall into a marriage where you were abused. And because I think if we have this picture of the kind of woman who would be subjected to that, you know, kind of weak or mousy, in the wrong place at the wrong time, sexually provocative, um, you know, those kinds of things are generally kind of what people think maybe. Right. Tell me in your work and, and even from your personal life, how did that, how did it happen? Um, for, well, thank you for all those nice things, but um, because I, I'm very compassionate and nurturing, and I, too, fell into that. I started dating someone offline, treated me like a queen um, initially, um, and after I said I do, it was Dr. Jekyll Mr. Hyde. It was the flop. And mm-hmm. um, the representative. And this was about your marriage, life. right? This was your marriage? Right. right. Okay. And so I, I think I'm a pretty good judge of character, but there are that was that time that I, I guess I was not a good judge of character on this because I didn't see that coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and to have gone through that and the domestic violence and all that stuff, it's like, okay, really? I know I'm a good judge of character. How did I fall into this and why did it happen to me? But I, I think, too, because of mentoring women, the women I was mentoring, too, they saw me date, meet, date, marry and, and go through that whole process of domestic violence, too. So mm-hmm. I was always saying, here, let me help you with the resources. Here, let me get you the resources. But I think I had to go through it to see what the other side was and the other side mentally on the other side because I can give women as many resources as I can, but for them, I couldn't understand why do you keep going back? Why do you keep mm-hmm. going back in that cycle? And it wasn't until I got into it myself that I can see the mindset and how it is hard to sometimes get out. Um, so tell, tell us a little bit about that. Because, yeah. you know, there are a lot of people who, you know, who are going to be listening to this and go, there's just no way. I, I mean, I, the first time I get hit, I'm out of there like, you know, a yeah. bolt of lightning and whatnot. What, what was that mental, what were you thinking about? What was that belief system that made you kind of, stay and then go back so when i say okay so it started off subtle like it was subtle like you treated me like a queen like you did everything for me and all this stuff and um the little subtle things came after the fact after i said i do um calling names um being very possessive kind of like you know when you're dating it's like Oh, he just wants to be with me. He's, you know, that's kind of cute. Like, he just pushing it off, like, under, sweeping under the rug. But, no, it, it grows and grows because um, once you started seeing what I was doing and I was out and about, it's like I was doing my business. And it was, it just turned where I don't want you to leave the house. Like, you don't need to leave the house. I'm not here working for us. You need to be here doing the church and doing this. This is what I need you and kind of stifled that. So it was a little subtle thing. And a lot of times when when we're in relationships like this, it can be condescending things. They can say things that are like 
jokingly, but you know in your heart and your spirit that does not feel good to you. So you mm-hmm. take a mental note of that. And then um, they go into teasing and, and then trying to make you feel like some of the things that you say are crazy, um, makes you where you doubt yourself, make you mistrust yourself, misjudge what your own thoughts are. And so it just grows and grows. And then you start getting to where, or and for me, it was like this person was not good for me. And every time the text message, the ringtone, the phone, or the truck would come in the yard or whatever, my whole body would hurt. And that's mm-hmm. how it, it became gradual. So mm-hmm. it starts off small, and you kind of like keep it under the rug, but then you're still making those mental notes. But then, too, on the other end, if you're doing most of the depositing in the relationship and you feel like you're getting blamed for everything and you're not getting anything in return, that was another big red flag for me. I was doing all the deposits, you know, making you feel good, cooking dinner, like everything a wife is supposed to do. (laughs) Um, But at the same time, it was not, it didn't, it was never enough. You couldn't do Mm -hmm. anything right. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know you're smart and you're intelligent and you have a mind of your own and you can, you have a voice and opinion. But when they start cycling it down, cycling it down, they try to chip away at your self-esteem and your personality and and changing you day Mm -hmm. by day by day. And so I can see where women now, it takes a woman seven times average to leave. Mm. It took me three times to leave. I left six months later. Mm -hmm. So I think the more they chip at you and make you feel defeated, the longer women stay. And if, if women don't have a strong support system, too, that's because yeah, that's one of the things yeah. they take away from you first. Oh yeah, they try to isolate you, where they make you feel like your family and your friends are doing whatever. So they're talking bad about them to get you to start thinking bad about them mm-hmm. and keep you away. They even move you away out the city limits or somewhere. That, Isolation mm-hmm, that you don't have family or friends to get you by yourself. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's, it's interesting, I, you said it in passing, but I think one of the more the significant things for me that you said is, in the beginning, it feels like it's love, it's cute, the uh-huh. isolation, the I want to be with you, I, you know, it's just you and me together uh-huh. Uh-huh. kind of conversation, which over time, very slowly and gradually grows to this, you're isolated because now you not only are in this, but you have no one to be able to reach out to. Right. After a while, when you see yourself in this situation, is there a level of shame and blame that keeps you from talking to people that you really could talk to? Not just your family, but friends, the whole deal of, I cannot tell anyone. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because you feel like, well, even for me, you feel like people look up to you. They come Mm -hmm. to you for answers, and then you find yourself in this situation. It's like, the shame was unbearable for one because this was my second marriage too. So mm-hmm. feeling like a failure, if you're already having these thoughts about yourself anyway for getting into the situation and coupled with that coming from that person, and then you have your family and friends, like how could you? Don't you know I saw it? Blah, blah, blah. And it piles up and piles up and you feel like your voice, like you just, your voice is, is gone. Like you, yeah. 
no one's going to listen to you and all that stuff, and no one wants to help because that's what they try to tell you. No one's going to help you. You know, you got into this. you got to get yourself out. So it, it's mm-hmm. the shame and the guilt is overwhelming a lot. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, even for me, it took, it took probably a, all of last year to really work on me and to do self-care. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, uh, the longer you're in it, the longer you have to do the self-care stuff. I try and tell, don't go get out of a relationship and jump back into another one without doing the self-care. Otherwise, you're going to be attracting the same person over and over and over to you. You said it takes seven times for the average woman to kind of mm-hmm. break the change. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why is it seven? Seven because they will, it's a cycle. It's a, a repeat cycle. They go and they do the love and attention, they get you all the, just worked up. It's called the honeymoon phase. They give you all the things you're looking for. One, because women tell everything about their life and what they've done and what they went through. And so they're listening. They're listening and, and taking notes and seeing what will make them look like their knight, your knight in shining armor. Mm-hmm. So they're listening, and so that's when they give you all that you're needing. You feel like they feel like you're lacking from the other relationships in that honeymoon phase. Mm-hmm. And then it goes into the insulting, the uh, um, accusations, and the arguing, because that's when the tension is building up. And then it goes into the violence, the danger, and all that stuff. And then it goes back to the apologies and promises. I'm going to go get counseling, and we're going to do counseling, and blah, blah, blah. And so it's a cycle over and over. And the cycle can go on for months or even years. Mm-hmm. But it's up until that woman gets tired, not just tired, but sick and sick and sick and tired of going through it. So until she's set up truly and people on the outside can look and say, don't you know better? But it's not until she is ready. And a yeah. lot of times it takes, it takes some things to, to get her stirred up. You know, everybody's tolerance level is different. Mm-hmm. So the average time is, is seven is seven times. Um, but it's wow. snowballing, unfortunately. Wow. And, and I think the other interesting piece that I think about is you decided to tell your story. In fact, the reason I heard your story on Facebook, which is the reason I reached out to you to share with my listeners. Yeah. I think when we, you know, look at the Kavanaugh-Ford conversation, when we think of the Anita Hill-Thomas conversations, when we think about all the women who have, you know, suddenly, you know, whether it's Bill Cosby, all of these people, these women were silent about it, Uh did not say anything at all. And Uh because they were silent, there's this conversation on the other side that, well, it really didn't happen. Your memory is fake. You, right. If it had happened, you would have said something, right. and you didn't say anything, so did it really happen? Mm-hmm. I know that part of that is our tendency not to believe what we don't see. You know, right. It took a long time before we realized that the earth was round, and there's still people who are called flat earthers who believe that, the word, that this is all a conspiracy right. out there that happens to people. And some of the worst people in terms of con- condemning women – who are victims of either sexual assault or sexual intimidation happen to be women. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that tension 
exists there as your work in the mental health or your work in domestic violence, does it give us any clues as to what is that about? I mean, I have my theories, but what do you think it's about? Well, keeping silent because of, one, the stigma hmm. behind it, fear of what other people will say, keep so people the silent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even for me, when it comes to when I was raised in college, I didn't say anything up until like five years ago. Hmm. And I didn't say anything because I was dating a quarterback, and the other guy was dating my friend, and um, I didn't want that to, I didn't want that headache. I didn't say anything. I didn't even tell my mom, my family, or anybody. When you Um, said you didn't want that headache, what headache? The headache of going through the police and the judgment on campus and and everyone pointing fingers and all that kind of stuff. It, I didn't want to go through that. Like, and then it just felt like it was overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So I just kept quiet and didn't say anything. But I can see, too, on both ends how people do keep quiet and how some women do come up out of the forefront from years ago. I see both sides. But you still have the whole judgment piece, the whole shame, and people will be like, well, you caused it on yourself and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, no, no one causes anyone to get raped or whatever. No one wants that. That's about someone else's power and control. No one mm-hmm. opts to have that done to them. So a lot of things happen. There are a lot of things that happen that some women who have been molested when they were younger, and those things just seem to follow them. And so they were told to be quiet and not tell anyone. And so if it happens again as they get older, then that's what they go back to. They revert back to that childhood thought process. Mm-hmm. Be or quiet. They go little girls should be, extreme. yeah, yeah. Little mm-hmm. girls should be heard, not seen. Mm-hmm. Um, it was your fault mm-hmm. um, kind mm-hmm. of thing, yeah. And so now flip it to the women who are, you know, you're just a liar because this guy right. is so good, right? Right. He doesn't right. treat everybody right. like that. So right. in your work with domestic violence, is there kind of a type of guy? Because my theory is this. I think, to me, these are predators. Mm-hmm. I think predators can discern who is the best prey for them. Oh, yeah. And that they can, they do. They have this wonderful way of being this upstanding person to mm-hmm. other folks. And yet, to the people who they know, the women that they know, the men, because, you know, men can be sexually assaulted, too. I want to, this is not about women. I think this is about the mind of a predator and their proclivity for power and power through sexual, I don't want to say degradation, but to use sex as a weapon. Right. In the process. In your work, do the professionals that you work with talk about what is the mindset of the predator, or if they don't call them a predator, is there a term or a label that they, they put on psychopath, these men? They psychopath. They call them psychopaths or narcissists. But it does go to the power and control piece. And mm-hmm. these predators, they do know who to approach and who to mm-hmm. do that to because they're looking at women who are nurturers, who have compassion, who are nice, who probably do sometimes have much more to lose than they do. Mm-hmm. And these guys are, you know, white collar, blue collar. Red <laughs> collar. <doesn't> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it, it does not matter. 
So if they feel like they can get over or dominate someone's life, then they will. And a lot mm-hmm. of times it comes from their upbringing, too. Like either mm-hmm. their mother has done something to them mm-hmm. that they remember, and it turns it where they don't respect women at all. Mm-hmm. And that can create the avenue for them to get into doing what they do. Mm-hmm. If a woman has done something to them that they don't like and they cannot get over that they're holding on to, then mm-hmm. they would do that as well. So it's like they're trying to get back at everybody else they try to encounter. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if they're old, young, rich, poor. It's just who they are and their makeup and the things that they've gone through and experienced that causes them to actually do that. They're is I'm sure medication for it. Like I said, I should have been a psychiatrist. (laughs) (laughs) But it's sad because even men, like you mentioned, they do get violated as well. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times they don't know how to have that outlet. So they take it out on other people. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, majority of the time it is women. And from way back when women were supposed to, they were thinking that, you know, it's, Women are good for cleaning the home, making the house a home, having babies. That's all you say. And I always mm-hmm. say, a man, it doesn't matter. They have PMS syndrome, too. All they want is power, money, and sex. You know? mm-hmm. These predators and we're talking about. We are predators. So it's like that's what they thrive off of. And a lot of times the men, we are more relational. Women are more relational. We're emotional. We feel more. And they can do whatever they can do without any emotion, without any remorse, without any thought about it. It's just well, is it that or them. is it that their belief system is set up so that they believe that what they're doing really is good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's, it, it's the right thing to do. And so when you think you're doing the right thing, you tend not to have guilt or to shame kind of feelings about it because you believe that you earned it. And in that cycle, is it possible that when they're coming back, time number two, number three, you mentioned that they make the promises of going to therapy, they make promises of it'll never happen again, how much I love you, you know, those Mm -hmm. kinds of conversations. That's part of how we get back in the good graces so that, or they get back in the good graces so that they can still be in a dominant position. So it's always about dominance, right? Oh, yeah. Always about dominance, control. And whatever they can do to feel like they are above you. Yeah, and they have control over you. Mm-hmm. If they feel like they can get you feeling one way about them all day long, mm-hmm. and they know they have your mind, your heart, and your feelings, then that's when they best have you. And they will then either dump you, go to, or go to the next supply, and it comes back. They'll come back. It's like a revolving door. Mm-hmm. Only in until a woman gets sick and tired and it's like no more. And you have to cut them off completely mm-hmm. in order to get yourself healthy. Yeah, and then to focus on your thinking and to deal with the shame and the blame that you have on yourself. It's how do I forgive myself for making this kind of mistake? Mm-hmm. And you have to do the work to, to get to the bottom of that because mm-hmm. if you don't see the reason why, what attracted you to this person? Mm-hmm. When did you first notice the red flag mm-hmm. and you still stay?
what is it that's in you that allowed it and why? Yeah. You have to get yeah. to the root cause of that. Otherwise, you will keep attracting the same people. So, uh, one of the things that I found over my years as a HR professional is, is that the process of investigating complaints actually traumatizes women because there's a feeling, no matter how you ask the question, there's always this feeling that I'm blaming you or I'm questioning what actually happened. And people respond to trauma very different ways. Sometimes I remember all the trauma. Sometimes I remember the essence of the trauma. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't mean that whether I can remember every vivid detail or I remember the essence of it, it doesn't mean that the trauma did not happen out of the process. Right. And I think the same happens when the police get involved. In their typical way of investigating something and questioning people, there's a way in which those questions can feel like accusations and that I don't believe you. Right. And in both cases, it is about building a case that, for me, every time I had to investigate a claim of sexual harassment, whatever it was, particularly sexual harassment or racial discrimination and uh, inappropriate behavior in the workplace, there's a process in which the investigation, you have to get all the facts. You not only have to get the facts, but you have to kind of talk about people. And once you start talking it to people who potentially could have seen it, there's no way you can control what the story is going to be. Um, And I think in many ways what you were talking about when you tell people and then everybody tells your story and they're kind of looking at you sideways, especially if they've experienced the predator in a different way, Uh uh puts the pressure on women to be able to have to justify their experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that in many ways is what we're wrestling with now. How do we create a fairness and balance in terms of investigation? Because I've also had the experience of there are just some women who I knew and through what was going on, they were using the accusation as a weapon. So it happens on both sides. You know, narcissists don't have sexual proclivities, right? They can be male, they can be female. Right. And it is about power and control. Mm-hmm. But in terms of particularly what have you learned or what's kind of the best practices about when you have to conduct an investigation, when you suspect someone in the workplace or a friend is being abused, what are some tips that I can take away in terms of how would I talk to that person? How would I handle that person? How would I make it so that this person wasn't so ashamed of telling me the story that they choose not to be in relationship with me. Yeah, it can be touchy because people who are victims tend to have a trust issue. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times if they go to work, if you work with them, you see bruises or you see cuts or whatever, a lot of times they're going to cover it up or not tell you the truth, one. So making it where you can be non-judgmental, first of all, because a lot of times they will look and say, well, why is it if I tell this person something, are they going to go back and tell such and such? So for them to be vulnerable to share, mm-hmm. that's, that's the one thing. And then they sit alone, so they don't know who they can truly trust, even if it's at work or even gets them out. So a lot of times even trying to put a safety plan together, they have to have somebody who they know that will help them. 
Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, the way we approach people, even for officers or if a woman is being abused or in a domestic violence situation, a lot of times they don't necessarily want to see a man who is going to make them feel any worse. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so that's why a lot of police officers really do need to take more training mm-hmm. to deal with people who have mental challenges and are in domestic violence situations because mm-hmm. the way they ask a question or provoke answers or try to steer you towards one way makes that person feel devalued and not telling the truth. And so then that goes into making that person question themselves. Mm-hmm. So knowing how to ask the questions, knowing how to have the right tone and the right environment, can't ask somebody about that kind of personal stuff in a room full of people. Mm-hmm. Being able to feel comfortable enough and have them feel comfortable enough to remove from that area and take them somewhere where they can be vulnerable is a good thing. And have them to write everything out. I used to document everything in my iPhone. I would After something that happened, I would go into the bathroom and document everything. Because a lot of times when you go through trauma, and you get strangled and you feel like you're about to die and you will forget something. So if they haven't written anything down, have them write it down and have it and ask those questions. They give us all these questions to ask when someone is mentally challenged or when someone has gone through trauma or domestic violence or anything like that because the way you ask the question means a lot and how they're going to respond. And if so give us, like a, give us an example. Give us an example of what would be a good question to ask. So you can ask, are you safe? Do you feel safe at home? And if they hesitate and the answer is no, and you obviously see some bruises or, or whatever, then okay. Then you can say, okay, if you, are you, if you don't feel safe at home, how can I help you? What do you need me to do? You offer yourself, your services, whatever it is to them, mm-hmm. and get them to let, let their guard down that you're able to, they're able to trust you. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of times if you go and say, oh, my God, and you get all frazzled and all that, that makes them get more frazzled. Mm. <laughs> and it makes them feel like, oh, my God, okay, this person's going to go. Always to the left, I need to be calm right now. And so how you approach them mm-hmm. really does, and the tone and all that does matter. So asking, how can I help you? What do you need me to do? Because a lot of times they don't know. If they were like, I need you to help me get out, then, okay, how can I help you get out? If they don't know, then you can probably suggest, do I need you to come, you need to come home with me? Do, is there somebody I can take you to that you feel comfortable with? Or what do I need to do? Do I need to get your kids or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Um, just asking them so how they can feel comfortable. Because a lot of times, because they've been isolated, they don't. can't trust anybody. Yeah, because they don't people, know who's going to go back to him. Yeah, and especially if he knows where they work, um, their parents' homes or their friends' homes and all that kind of stuff, it, it's hard. The other side, that mental part behind it is, a totally different ballgame. Mm-hmm. And they tear you down where you don't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. So. And, and, that's, and it's interesting because we have such a, um, you know, de- trust deficit in, in our world today. 
I, I think if there, you know, there are enough studies now that say two things are, are becoming a mental health and um, a health issue in general. One of them is loneliness, which only pushes um, victims more into loneliness. It's the isolation of it all. And then the other piece of it is, is that, you know, we, for whatever reason, snarkiness and snide comments and, and tone that is accusatory mm-hmm. has seen, is now seen as funny and yeah. cute and don't take it serious. You're too sensitive um, mm-hmm. kind of thing in the world. And yet that's the very thing that whether a person is a victim of sexual trauma or discrimination, whatever, it, that's probably the number one thing that will silence them. Oh, yeah. Definitely, because they feel like, well, I'm not, I, I, I can't, like, I can't open up. And if they feel like they can't open up, they'll go back into their shell. Mm-hmm. And so they can find or feel like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. I don't do it this time, then something could happen to me. Mm-hmm. So that isolation thing is, is hard, especially mm-hmm. when, you feel like you can't talk to anyone or no one's going to believe you, and that's not a good feeling. But, again, you know your family and friends better than the spouse or the guy does. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Whoever the perpetrator is. Mm-hmm. And so you would know who you can trust, but you have to decipher between what the perpetrator has said to make you feel like this person has turned against you, your friend or whoever, a family member has turned against yeah, you. Yeah, because in some cases they will threaten your family Oh, members. yeah. Oh, yeah. And so you don't talk to them and don't come by and all kinds of stuff. Like, mm-hmm. stay away from here. And that's not good either. Mm-hmm. It's more hurtful than anything, mm-hmm. which causes mm-hmm. way more isolation. And it, it hurts. But having the strength to come up out of it and say no more is, is the key mm-hmm. and actually mm-hmm. doing something about it. I know for the mindset just being in it, it's like, okay, I have this plan. I have this plan. Like I, I even remember calling you that what, one time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey, come get me. I think he, either you or Pam can even call the police down there. So mm-hmm. it's like, um, you know who you can call and who can be there for you, and sometimes you just, you don't, you can't trust them. They will bail out on you. So just having that frame of mind where you have some sanity enough to make a plan to get out of it and who you can absolutely call. I'm happy that you chose to, to say on the call that there was a time when you reached out to me and I came to you yes, to, you to try and help you out. I want to talk a little bit about that piece of it because your words and your coaching in terms of your advice, in terms of the way you ask um, a victim, someone who's who's really not in a, in a good frame of mind, is very important. However, on the other side, it is me managing my need or drive to want to rescue. And I think that energy of managing that and knowing that you cannot do more for that person than they want because of the safety issue Uh is very hard for those who are there to support victims. 
Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of being able to do that. What could we tell? Because when you think of it, one in six women, South Carolina is like number four or five on domestic violence in the nation, I think in the world. One in, it's of, one in three women and one in four men. Okay. So, so we all know somebody. Mm-hmm. And if we don't know somebody, we know of somebody. And certainly mm-hmm. in the workplace, we know someone mm-hmm. who is either about to enter into that, they are in it, or they're coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And from a support yeah. side, the patience necessary, the patience required to be able to read and to say, no matter how much I want to, I have to allow this person they have to go through their journey of this and this cycle of seven times or four times or three times, whatever it is. Is there, in working with the, either the mental health or the Domestic Violence Association, what tips do they give to people who are there trying to help? Because if you go in blazing, I mean, so I can think of very interesting things, you know. You don't tell your parents because you're afraid your parent is going to come over and kill somebody. They wind up in jail. Oh, yeah. Or a sister, or, you know what I'm saying? So you can't say that to somebody who really loves you and wants to protect you because I'm afraid if I tell you you're going to do something that's going to cause you to go to jail and I'm back in this situation and this person's going to be even worse on me, or you actually harm them, and now I have to live with the guilt of you're in jail because of me mm-hmm. in the process. But there's also the, the pain of I'm helping you. And I see you go back in, and I cannot reach in. I have to wait for you to reach out for help. Do they have tips, or are there classes? Are there, you know, do they do training sessions with, you know, know, maybe people in HR, people, um, executives, et cetera, that can help them be better equipped to mentally and emotionally go through this process um, in general? Um, There are classes. And a lot of the tips are, you know, your loved ones do want to help, but at the same time, you have to look at the safety issues, like you mentioned. So that's where coming, having a plan in place helps, um, as opposed to doing things out on a whim, mm-hmm. I mean, especially if the situation has escalated and escalated. So you have to be careful as to who you are inviting in that circle to help you get out. Mm-hmm. You have to know who that, like, person's mindset is. Like, my sister, she came with a crowbar, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, she came with a crowbar. And so um, you have to know who it is that you share because they love you. They want to see the best for you. And a lot of times, They'll see you go back and forth, back and forth, but they still need to understand that it's not until you are ready. Mm-hmm. And they can't do it without any judgment. If they aren't going to help step up and say, you can come stay with me or I can, you can do this, then it, that makes it even harder. Mm-hmm. So if the person, the support team doesn't come with some strong solutions, um, some even had interventions. Some had solutions ready. Some went in on a whim and just got the person out. It just depends on the severity of it. But you have to look at who it is, one, and what their personality is, and that. Then you have to look at if they're going to actually do something to them because the perpetrator can get mad 
and do something crazy, God forbid, but you just have to know the situation. That's where the planning comes. And they do have um, classes, and I actually, um, for my nonprofit, some start doing classes for even hairstylists because hairstylists, um, they hear a lot of stories when those ladies sit in their chairs to get their hair done or their makeup mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. And they need to know how to talk to them, how to listen, actively listen, and to know how what steps that they can do to help that person. Right. Um, someone wants to come to them in that situation. So even there was one lady that was in my class who was talking about how one of her ladies who worked with her, she was abused and had bruises and black eyes and stuff. And her boss happened to be a male. And after she got in trouble or he got served or something had happened, it wasn't until he was like, oh, my God, I didn't know. I didn't know. And she was like, how could you not know? You saw me with black eyes. You saw me with bruises. So even for people in the workplace, if you see something, don't turn a blind eye to it. If you have a relationship with that person who is the victim, then ask the question. A lot of times they don't want to say anything. They're waiting for people to notice that. So how you approach and ask the person, do they need help? I see you have a black eye. I see what happened. How can I help you? Is it something that happened at home? Like, you can't just turn your head and say nothing. But the other is that I think, at least in my experience, what I would get from people, victims, is, well, I fell down. Or Mm -hmm. they seem clumsy Mm -hmm. a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'd be like, hmm, hmm, what? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, time when you fall down. Having the EAP is to call them and to say, look, I think it's happening. 
um, and they can help at least get an intervention. I don't even know if they keep using that word or anymore, but they can introduce them Thank to you. somebody who is a professional on helping them create the plan, even if they don't do anything with the plan. Yeah. And it cuts the gossip down. Yes. In the workplace because, yes. you know, this is just, you know, Mary Sue came in to see me. I just want to want you to talk. And so if other people are asking, I would coach them and say, hey, you know what, just tell them that, this is a vendor or this is a developmental conversation with them, and just leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And so that now you've provided a way for cover in the workplace so mm-hmm. that this person can at least know that somebody cares and somebody is watching from a caring point of view rather than having them continually traumatized. Because I, I think the thing that the Me Too movement and certainly the Kavanaugh-Ford issues and the social media around it is, is that, no matter how we look at it, the person who's been traumatized by one person, now if they speak up, they are continually traumatized by everybody in their eyesight and then from people they don't even know. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you go back to, and, and you don't, but how does your family, how do your kids, you know, people talk about Kavanaugh being traumatized, but, you know, this woman's face is everywhere now. Her children, right. her family, her parents. Everyone, and and they all are standing there going, you know, if you're the parent, how did you let this happen? How did you not know? How could you have a liar for a daughter? Uh Is is she psychopathic? Is she, you know what I mean, that kind of thing. She was a political pawn, Um, all of those things. And so now what we have is we have her being traumatized forever. You know, I think of Monica Lewinsky and her coming out saying that if it hadn't been for her parents, she would have committed suicide. Uh, their care yeah. and their reaching out to her. But every time she speaks, there's a level of of reliving that experience every time she shows up in public. Right. And I don't and think people really understand stigma. that this is, yeah, the stigma, whether it's real or memorix. You uh-huh. know, personally, I don't know how Monica could not have changed her name. <laughs> Just right. to get away from, and the same with Dr. Ford. I think that I would change my name in these days. So that yeah. I could have peace. I mean, I, I, and that's one of the reasons why, why I didn't. Because looking at her, and, and, and I mean, that happened how many years ago? Yeah. And now every time something comes up, it's like, how long is this going to stay in the forefront? Yeah. Like, yeah. when are you going to get over it? I just want to have my own life. Like, I don't even know if she's married. But mm-hmm. her, if her husband... I mean, he has to be a strong person to cover her, mentally, mm-hmm. emotionally, all of it, because otherwise, I, I, can, I can see how she could want to commit suicide, because her name is all over the world just from that mm-hmm. experience. So, mm-hmm. and, and to think, and I think the other side of it is there's so many women who will look at her or look at people like Anita Hill, they'll look at people like Mona Lewinsky, um, you know, those in the Me Too movement, and they will say, um, you know, I, I really don't like you talking about this because mm-hmm. now it's the top of a conversation, and every time I stand silent and mute about my assault, mm-hmm. there's a piece of me that dies in the fact that I cannot risk what you all are doing to her. I'm not going to put it up. I'm not going to put it on my kids. I'm not going to put it on my spouse. I'm not going to put it on my mother, my father, my sister, my brother, 
um, because all of them, I would think, are standing there wondering, how did they not know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and they'll be guilty. They're also guilty as this as well. Right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It's, it's like a lot. And when you do that, it's like um, the decisions you make. You have to look at the consequences and things that come along with it, mm-hmm. because a lot of times our our decisions affect everybody else around us, and with that comes the stigma. And I'm sure her parents or brothers or sisters or whomever, um, they are tired of it too. So absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So all right. But so I, if, if we I'm, want to talk with you further or simply connect with you, it's via LinkedIn. Alicia Brooks with Alicia with an E L Y S H I A, and her link will be attached to the podcast below. I appreciate the work that you're doing in terms of doing it from a place and teaching women how to tell their story from a place of empowering, a place where they can inspire others to not have to suffer in silence. Oh, yes. I think if we suffer in silence, then different things can happen. Unhealthy things can happen, and I just want to be a voice to, for those who are. Absolutely. So, yeah. listeners, if you like it, share it. If you don't, tell me. That's kind of the way I want it to be. <laughs> and until next time, thank you for listening, and I hope that if you do nothing else, please share this podcast or what you've learned um, in this podcast with other people. There are folks you know them, whether you think you do or don't think you do, Bring up this conversation. Practice having a plan in place where if someone happens to fall into a situation where they become a um, a victim of domestic violence or sexual assault or discrimination, they have a safety plan where they know that someone is going to keep it confidential, but they're also going to be there to help them. Until the next time, have a great day, and thank you again. Bye-bye. You know someone who right now who's being battered, verbally and financially abused. The numbers don't lie. One in three women and one in four men. Finding a way to help can be tricky, but here's three things you can do. First, contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. Again, it's 1-800-799-SAFE and ask about helping someone create a safe plan. Two, you can ask your HR department to host a lunch and learn seminar on the subject and ask them to make sure that they cover the safety plan. And if you're in human resources, learn how to correctly conduct an investigation. Don't put more stress on the person than is necessary. As you've heard, those who are being terrorized don't trust anyone because if word gets out, not only is their life in danger, but the lives of others who they love may also be in danger. Please do something today. If you see something, say something. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and took away a few tips that will close the gap between making your dream life your real life. If you enjoyed this podcast, pass it along. Leave a question or a comment below. It would mean the world to me if I could connect with you. So, go out to my LinkedIn page, ask for a connection, or Twitter, at Coach HR. And remember, answers are better than anger, seek empowerment rather than divisiveness, and the responsibility is yours to achieve the life that you really want to have. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.